I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hi, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Right at the top of this episode, I wanted to share some amazing news. I am so excited to announce that we finally have some merch. In collaboration with the Feminist Candle Co., the Reclaim Me podcast has got three limited edition candles that are ready to go. There is only a limited amount, so getting quick, otherwise you might miss out. I just want to give a shout out to the Feminist Candle Co. Thank you so much for collaborating with me and creating these. My house with all of the candles in it smells absolutely amazing. Um, And I just want to say thank you again. So if you're listening to this, go give the Feminist Candle Co. a follow. And if you are interested in any of their other designs, then go get one. They are amazing. And you're supporting a small women-owned business, which is incredible too. So thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. But now we're on to this week's episode. And I'm so excited to share that we are back with Maddie. Now, if you haven't already listened to parts one and part two with Maddie, then please go back a couple of episodes so that you can listen to those two first. Otherwise, this continuation of our conversation will probably not make much sense. So just make sure that you do that before listening to this episode as well. Maddie has come back on this week and she is going to share a little bit more, I guess, about what her experience was. In the previous episode, she spoke about the sexual assault that she endured. Um, And this episode, we really go more into the process of reporting and what that looked like getting up 
to the court dates that she had to sit through and go through when getting her guilty verdict. I just want to give a trigger warning that this entire episode is incredibly angry making as well. There's a lot of things that happen throughout. There is a lot of swearing as well. I know that a few of you have messaged me and said that there is too much swearing, but I want you to know that I don't care. (laughs) It's really important for me that all victim survivors can share their stories in their own words. I want these to be real conversations and I don't want to censor them. So if somebody wants to come on and swear, not only do I encourage that, Um, I'm never going to stop allowing that because I don't want to have to censor what anybody wants to say in their own words when it comes to telling their story. You know, thank you for listening and we'll get right into our discussion with Maddie. Today I am joined back again by Maddie Lane. Maddie was with us in part one and I guess two um, where she detailed her story. Um, Maddie went into I guess what happened on the night and leading up to the night that she was assaulted. And she's here today to kind of go into a little bit more detail about what happened after the night um, and what the process has been like for that since for her. So welcome back, Maddie. Thanks, Ella Maddie. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm so happy to have you back and to to get you on because I think you know, we get to go into the beauty of podcasting is that there's no limitation on time or anything like that. So it's great to have you back to re-record, I think, um, in more detail, I guess, additional to your story. So you were able to kind of go into detail about a lot of what you went through. And now we can talk about the other side of that. And I think it's really important. I think, you know, podcasting provides a platform that other media agencies don't have. Um, where we can go into this kind of detail. And I really appreciate that you're giving us the time to go through this with us. So I think we, we we left off last time with kind of you going to the hospital and that was kind of where we concluded um, kind of on that night's events that we've kind of completed. Um, yeah. Do you mind kind of picking back up, I guess, where you went from there and what your experience was like, I guess, the night following or the time following Yeah, no, that's not a problem at all. And like you said, I'm really grateful for this because I think the biggest thing for me, the reason I want to get my story out there is because I was just so unaware for me for the process. So I feel like by being able to share my process with people, they they know what they're in for when they report it or, you know, they know what that process looks like. You know, I still have people ask me and they're like, oh, is that how it works? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Um, so yeah, so back, back, um, yeah, back on the night, obviously went to the hospital, came home, slept. I think I went into a bit following that, um, the hospital gave me three days of work, um, which was needed. I was just terrified to leave my apartment and because I said he knew where I worked. And then I straight away, like the trauma sort of started, like things that were very different to me, things I weren't used to. So I think I mentioned um, last time, like, you know, being afraid to look at people in the eyes, like that was a big one for me. Like I had to retrain myself. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. Um, Another thing for me is I always had to be doing things with my hands, which isn't common for me. I'm a very chill person. I'm happy to sit there, do nothing. Like I'm like a sloth. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But for me afterwards, like 
I just like kept having to like twiddle, twiddle with things. So like, you know, like a minion, anything, a stress toy and things like that. And the one thing I can give credit for is was being given the uh, sexual assault counsellor through the hospital. So straight from the get-go that next week, I started sessions with her and she was has been so vital, I think, in my story and being able to go to her and being able to talk to her about things and be like, is not is this normal? Because I don't think anyone experiences trauma the same way. But she can explain to me why I'm doing things like that. So for me, that and for me, I was constantly like rubbing my arm, like just stroking myself. It sounds so weird now looking back at it. But like, you know, the next week talking to her and I'm just like, I don't know why I'm doing this. And she's like, she's like your body, your brain is naturally telling your body it's trying to ground itself in this moment. So it realizes it's safe. Like you may not realize you're doing it, but you're grounding yourself like subconsciously. So you're not going back to that night. It was really good to talk to her. But yeah, the weeks following really like, I was just like, like, but I was just a fucking shell of myself. Like I was unrecognizable. Like people realized straight away, like I couldn't leave the house. Like I went from going for a walk every day. Um, I live very close to the beach. I live in a beautiful spot of paradise here. I just, I couldn't even go for a walk by myself because I was so afraid of strangers or he also said he surfed at the beach locally, like near my place in you roughly where I lived um and so that terrified me just the idea of running into him so like yeah I literally became a recluse I locked myself up for the weeks following I don't know if you're a fan of Grey's Anatomy like only the biggest (laughs) (laughs) I was like never a fan like I'd watch an episode now and then but like I just wanted something to watch during that time. I watched season one, I think back then it was to 14 in like the first month and a half. I just powered through. Like that's all I did. Sat on the couch, watch Grey's Anatomy, go to work, come back, Grey's Anatomy. And so something really good because I had to be doing things with my hands is I started doing puzzles. <laughs> it sounds really weird. Um, but like, and then like the week after, like I find very um therapeutic baking. So like the weekend after I couldn't sleep, it was Anzac weekend that weekend. And I ended up baking, it was like 84 cookies, like Anzac cookies. I just baked till I ran out of ingredients. Had no appetite, couldn't eat, didn't want them, but I just like baked them. Then I just had to give them out and be like, everyone take them. Obviously I laugh about it now, but it was really, it was horrible at the time. Um, And slowly, sort of like day by day, I just really started confiding in people and that it was really hard to begin with. Like, obviously I can talk about it now and I'm comfortable about back then. Like I couldn't even tell anyone without like having a panic attack and like, I was just so scared and like even I don't know for you but like for the longest time I I couldn't use the word rape like I just I couldn't associate the word rape with me I don't you know. 100% and I've said this before as well because even words that rhyme with that like I still avoid saying it now but somebody would say something like I'm going to go rake the front lawn and I'd be triggered instantly or um, break a leg and you'd be triggered instantly. And it's so weird that you just hear that. And I think it's because it's a word you associate with it as well. So I've always felt more comfortable and I'll always explain my story and in writing put anything and I'll say sexual assault um, because to me that encompasses that. And I still, to this day, even doing what I do, feel incredibly uncomfortable saying that word. And it's I completely understand what you mean by that because it's it's it becomes a trigger for you. Yeah. And I think 
for me to begin with it definitely was like I just didn't associate mine like I said like for me it was so much and all the time telling people I was like oh but I went to his house I got in his bed like I've let him do other things to me so all this time and for so long I was like blaming myself it was my fault it was my fault so you know it wasn't right because I let him do other things and that's the thing and I think across sort of like the tears it's definitely it's become a word and I can understand why people find it triggering for me I sort of like earn the word now like the more I say it the more comfortable I am with it I was like no this did happen to me I feel like sexual so I get why people feel more comfortable with it but that's the thing I find society more comfortable with it and for me I'm like no I was raped and that makes you uncomfortable so you need to face that and we need to change that because it's so uncomfortable no one wants to talk about it because as well what I love in this discussion between you and I is that there's no right or wrong but I think what you've just said because we're going through our own experiences and our own rights as well has made me question that. And I I love that in that sense, because I think now it's something that possibly I could challenge myself to, because maybe I am subconsciously trying to make other people feel more comfortable with the topic, um, even myself included. So that's a really good call out. I really love that insight that you've provided there. It's a good shout. Yeah, no problem. But yeah, so um, yeah, I was confiding in people, um, Um, mainly because I was just so scared like I said he knew where I worked he knew exactly where I worked he knew roughly where I lived and I was just so afraid all the time and I remember even having like like responses to my trauma that I wasn't even aware of like it took me the longest time like where I'm video you can see my bed behind me I always had one side of the bed I slept on and it took me weeks to realize the day after I had moved to the other side of the bed because my side was his side that night and I just don't want any association with it and it took me like I was 26 27 when it happened to me so I slept on the same side for 26 27 years took me 11 months to be comfortable enough to to go back to my side of the bed like that's the thing people don't understand how much it just affects even little things like that sleeping on my side of the bed so yeah but yeah so roller medicines telling people and like most of my friends, like the people I was confiding with are my closest friends here in Sydney, um, where I've lived for the past 10 years. They all handled it relatively well. But, you know, if you and I knew the people straight away who it would be, but I knew it would make some people mad. And the people I expected would be like, you need a reporter. You need a reporter. And I was expecting it. I think it's why I left those friends for last, because I knew, I knew they'd push me to. But again, like I get where they were coming from, but at the same time in my head, I was like, fuck you. Like this didn't happen to you. Like one friend, she like I told her via text. And five minutes later, she's like, I'm in my car driving to you. I'm driving you to a police station. And I was like, no, turn around. Like this is my choice. Like it's my decision. Um, and I was just like this roller coaster of motion. So I'm sure anyone who's been through trauma, like experiences that I call it a roller coaster. So it can be like one day you're really happy and the next day you're inconsolable. It can be like minute to minute one day, one minute I can be super happy. And it's like, I guess, similar to watching people with bipolar going from those extremes. Like it was just extreme. I'd go from really angry. It was trying to understand those feelings and sort of try to level them out. And that's what I worked on a lot with my counselor, trying to level out those feelings. But it was like 10 days later, I think I told you on the last podcast, he texted me the following morning. He tried to call me. He tried to message me on Tinder. 
Um, did I say that last time? Yeah, I think I No, so was it so can we get the timeline? So the day after the the assault happened, you'd spent the night in host like in hospital yeah. getting all of this um work done. So he messaged you that morning, was it? Yeah. So the night I left, he messaged me as soon as I left his place and get home safely, exile or something, um, which helped me have a timestamp of when I left. <laughs> so thanks to him. Um, and then the next morning, so I got home from the hospital, it was about 8.30 and I tried to sleep and I only managed about two hours of sleep. Obviously I was exhausted, just showered and got into bed. And when I woke up, it was like 10.30 a.m. or 10. 30 to 11, whatever, um, I woke up and I had this onslaught of messages on my phone, but it was like from all my friends, a lot of friends responding to me, but it was missed calls from him. It was text messages from him and then Tinder messages from him. It's him apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry about last night. That isn't me as a person. I hope you understand that. Like, I really like you and stuff like that. Um, it's just confronting like the next day like you know like in my head I'm like you raped me and in his head he's like oh I'm sorry like I just really liked you I'm like what so in your mind was that him also like like how did you take it at that time was that almost validating for you to go if there was ever a question in my mind that this was wrong and that this is sexual assault, now it's confirmed because he's admitted that he's acted inappropriately. Yeah, in my mind, because like even the night before, I was like, oh, you know, like so much, like in shock. I was like, you know, this isn't this isn't sexual assault. I suggest two other things. So you know, like I consented, but I never consented to that act. And so getting that, it was validation for me in a way. But at the same time, during that rollercoaster of emotions it made me really angry at points as well. I was like, fuck you. So you know what you did was wrong and yet you still did it. Like, I was like, what? um, So yeah, I ended up, it was about 10 days later. I ended up one day, got home from work and I was just fucking furious. It was, I was really angry on this bout of angriness. I was like, I'm fucking responding. I am not happy. I need him to know that. And so I ended up responding to his texts like 10 days later. And so I I still have them. Obviously they were in evidence, but my texts are something along the lines of um, what you do with to me was wrong I said no before I got there I said no the entire night and I tried to fight you off me I hope you realize what you've done and it's not okay and then it was just like the string straight away from him of like messages being like I know I'm so sorry like I got too playful um you know I've been feeling really bad about it ever since um I wasn't responding it was just coming through and he ended up trying to call me and I just straight away like I was like no (laughs) I don't want to fucking talk to you what is wrong with you um so ignored it and he's like can we please talk about it and then send through this really long message of being like you have no idea how bad I've been feeling and I've been suffering really bad anxiety and depression about this and what's happened um like he I'm said a- that to you yeah oh the poor me syndrome of it all yeah oh the rage I felt and I had to like I don't respond for half an hour because I was just so like are you serious are you serious right now you feel anxiety and depressed I can't leave my fucking lounge room I'm scared of everyone I can't be touched by my friends anymore because I shake uncontrollably but you're suffering anxiety and depression from what you did to me I was like oh so yeah Um, 
<laughs> and just so like on that point, because I think I see this so much and it's it's so typical um, with abusers. What you see so much, it's like, um, you know, in Jess Hill's book where she talks about the fact that so many people who coercively control uh, domestic uh, partners, um, it's almost like they've read from the same handbook. And it's the same situation with this where it's just like, I'm going to blow up your phone. I'm going to be really remorseful. I'm going to do this. And then he's trying to use words like when you've said what you did was wrong and you, and he's admitted to that after you said that. If you analyse the words that he uses after that, I got too playful. Like playful isn't what you said. That's not validating what you've said. He's now trying to create a new narrative and to gaslight you, which is one of those pillars of that kind of power and control wheel. Like he's trying to regain control. And it sounds like he's doing that by blowing up your phone, by trying to call you and put you on the different foot, and then to try and now play another card because that's clearly not worked. He's gone to another tactic and he's kind of going, um, but poor me, poor me, poor me. Like I, I didn't, I didn't mean to, I was too, you know, and this is the whole defense and shit like that, where it's like, I've got blue balls. It's like, no, honey. And it just sounds like in my mind, when you're saying this, it's just ticking off the box because he's just trying to figure out a way to get what he wants by testing it and adjusting to that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I found it because I know exactly the date it came through. I won't read it out, but like, yeah, he's like, I truly apologize. I was really into you and thought you were enjoying it. And you somehow thought I was enjoying that? Like, like, how do you think anyone's enjoying that? Like, no, like, so yeah, I ended up apologizing and I tried, I just kept it calm. And because I was just like, no, like, I'm not going to blow up. Like, I'm not going to stoop to his level. So I just said, like, I sympathize with your depression and anxiety. But however, that is no excuse to have sex with me. I told you no before. I told you no during. And I tried to push you off of me. I don't think, oh, he offered to make it up to me. I was like, I don't think you can make it up to me. I hope you understand what you've actually done to me. And it's not okay. And again, here responded like instantly and he's like I can't tell you how horrible I feel honestly horrible if there's anything I could do to make it up to you I would I know it wasn't okay I got too playful I thought you liked me really sorry please do understand I really mean it I'm not a terrible guy please I'm sorry he's begging for his life now because he knows that he's sexually assaulted you or he's raped you and I think that's the other thing where he keeps kind of changing that word and saying I got too playful. I thought you liked it. It's kind of like he's now trying to build a defense into the messages. Like I think he's probably thinking about that. If there's a possibility you go to the cops, he's going to have to have a defense and he's choosing his words quite wisely um, or trying to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's choosing wisely and that's the, and that's why I like, yeah, it's so like tricky because I wanted to like have my validation and say it's not okay, but I'm just like, I was like the way he just plays it off. Like, how can you think I'm into that? And it just pissed me off so much. I was so angry. It just made me angry. I thought like confronting him by text would make me feel better in that moment, and it didn't. Like, I spiraled straight away. I had panic attacks when his texts were coming through. I just couldn't cope. I don't. I don't know. Why I thought it was a good idea at the time. Um, but yeah, like. And it just sort of set me over, like, when he said all that shit, I was like, well, maybe, like, maybe I do need to report him. I was like, but I just, I kept having nightmares, and I know how ridiculous it sounds, 100%, but I had these nightmares that, like, (laughs) in my, like, head of me reporting it, and then, like, I'd have this every night where I'd be 
interrogated by the police like in those like horrible Hollywood movies where you're like handcuffed to a like concrete table in a dark room and they're throwing chairs that's what I was envisioning and obviously I'd wake up and be like that's ridiculous you're the victim here what are you doing like in my head but I just I never knew like I never knew what the process was no one I knew had been through this I didn't know what to expect if I went to the police I was like how do you even know that I remember trying to look it up online and I just got so confused I was like what the what the hell's happening (laughs) um so I ended up speaking to my counselor so that week I think we text. It was like on a Monday. I think it was Monday night. We were texting. Um, I had a session with my counselor that Friday, and I just asked her. I was like, "Look, um, I'm not sure if I want to report, but like, I want to understand what it would look like if I report it. Like, what's entailed?" Um, and she broke it down for me, and it was really good to have her break it down. Um, and like, you know, she said they essentially they would investigate it and then talking to him would be the last step because they don't want him to destroy evidence. And an average like investigation lasts eight to 12 weeks. So we wouldn't find out to that point. Um, and then she's like, she was very clear with me. She's like, I want to make it crystal clear that not many people do report it. I, I remember you talk about the figures in another podcast, Maddie. I think it's like one in 10 or one in 15 or something fucking ridiculous. And she's like, out of the people who do report it in New South Wales, 80% don't make it past the police investigation, where it's just like, she's like, obviously it's a hard to prove crime. And she's like, out of the 20% that do make it to the courts, only 3% are found guilty. And it's like, so fucking no one, like, I get why people don't report it because I don't want to report it. And it's like, but out of the I went to say women, but out of the people, all genders who are strong enough to report what happens to them and 80% don't even make it past this fucking police investigation. Like they feel strong enough and they don't even get their day in court. It's like, how do I sit here? How do I sit there and risk him doing this to someone else, going to someone else and doing this because he got away with it for me? Secondly, how do I sit with these texts where he apologizes? And I was like, I could probably get him put away. Like, you know, and I was like, it's like fuck it just set me over I was just boiling mad and I was like I have to do it like I can't I can't not like I need to step forward and be strong enough for everyone who isn't strong enough to go forward so I ended up I have a friend from my work um, at Flat Center at the time and I knew her sister is a detective so I text my friend um and I was like hey can you message your sister just to ask what it looks like when you come in how long it takes just so I can get an understanding of it um because I think I do want to report it um and she ended up coming back to me and said hey she said it's like this blah 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 she's actually working tomorrow um and said she's happy to take she didn't say who I was because I knew the sister she's like um and happy for me to go in with you so have a friendly face so in my head I was like I went like this is like 8 p.m at night and then it was like the next morning I was like oh uh, okay (laughs) let's do this um and yeah so I ended up agreeing to go in with my uh Frank's last colleague um and her sister ended up getting called out to like I think it was a murder scene or maybe another sexual assault I don't actually know um and got delayed coming back so we were sort of just waiting all day to know when she would be back to take the statement and so she finished at 4 p.m because she got back at quarter past three so we had 45 minutes left 
So um, this was the one in like C works in the or backlink C work in the central stations in Sydney CBD. So it's like one of the major oldest stations. Um, and so she took my first initial statement. She just like summarized that like we don't have time to do the proper statement, summarized what happened. And I can tell you based if I was the one like, you know, your detective of what would happen from there. So I gave her just a brief summary. She took notes. Um, and then I showed her like the text from him and she's like, look, based on this, like if this was my case, like that would be enough for us to go and arrest him. He would be released on bail, but part of his bail would be that he can't contact you, which just made me feel a lot better because my biggest thing is once he knows, he knows where I work and he knows roughly where I live. Is he going to come and try to find me? Is he going to retaliate? Is he going to get violent? Like, I didn't know him. Like, I knew him for a week before this. So it made me feel better. But then she had to finish her shift. So she's like, I can get one of my colleagues. He is a male. Like, are you comfortable with that? And I was like, look, my friends here, like, it's fine. So I did um, my first statement with him, with her colleague. Um, It took, I think it was six to seven hours of sitting there. And as you probably know, Maddie, it's just like they need every detail. And like, obviously, I've talked about in the previous one, you don't forget things, but they want like details about what you talk about. And I was like, for hours, we watched a movie and like, you know, trying to remember his right hand on my like, calf or whatever like it's and they have to type it word for word and you know they asked me what I was wearing that night because I do have to ask that but it also just makes you angry because I'm like I could fucking arrive naked it doesn't give them the right (laughs) but I was so like where I didn't want to have sex I don't know if I talked about it but I took the like corniest pajamas like I and they were very pajamas (laughs) so I was like it was not sexy I was not a sexual person I didn't wash my hair I had no makeup on (laughs) I was not attractive. <laughs> um, so yeah, but went through there. So I ended up going on the Peter Alexander website with him and showing him the pajamas so he could include theirs and stuff like that. And he said the same thing. He's like, based on this, if this was my case, we I would go and arrest him and then release him. Um, and give that like security of like his bond not being able to contact me. But because the police station is based in the CBD. And he lives about the Harbour Bridge, and so do I. They have to hand it over to the local police station. So they couldn't be my detectives, which I was so is it So is it the kind of like basically saying that the, the jurisdiction that you had gone to wasn't in the area that the crime occurred, so you had to go to, they referred you to the police station that was closest to or within the jurisdiction of? Of where he lived, correct. Right, right. Um, they could take my initial statements. They just couldn't be assigned to my case. Like they couldn't take it ever. So they were fine to take the initial statements. But essentially, what happened is they handed over that night. I think we left there. It was like ten or eleven p.m. It was really late, and I don't know whether it was that. I think it was that night because he was on night shift. He like sent all the documents over. They obviously got all our text correspondence from that day. Um, I had screenshotted. Oh, it wasn't until I was there reporting that I realized he deleted me off Tinder. I was like, <laughs> well, fair, we weren't going to do anything more. So, um, but I had already screenshotted like his message apologizing the next day. So I was able to provide that for them. Um, so he handed it over. Um, and it's like, 
where the detective assigned to your case will call you tomorrow. Um, they'll definitely give you a call and then discuss um, what happens from here. And I just want to be transparent from the get-go. I have a really good relationship now with my detective. We're in a good place now. Back here, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. The whole police investigation was not a cup of tea for me. Um, so I was assigned to my detective the next day and he called me. I was obviously at work and he called and he firstly apologised. He's like, I'm sorry this happened to you. So I always find it hard when someone apologises. I don't know if you're the same, but I'm like, you didn't do this to me, but it's common courtesy for someone to apologise. But even so, I still find it all good. I was like, oh, it's okay. But it's not. It's a hard thing because this is a, you know, such a difference in language because I always make a point of apologising to somebody when they share something with me like that. But I'm saying sorry on behalf of other people, not because I owe you something. Like it's because I'm sorry that that happened to you. You know what I mean? Like I don't want that to happen to you and I don't, you know, I don't want to say I empathize with you. Maybe I think I always just say, I'm so sorry you experienced that. And then I'll always follow it up with an immediate statement or question or something as well. But I know that with some people that really rubs them the wrong way. But with me, when somebody says that, I find it quite validating. So it is hard. You never know the the 100% right thing to do or say. No, no, it is hard. And you're right. No one knows the right thing. There is no right thing. I was telling a colleague today about it because I was talking about how I was doing this podcast. And I was saying, I was like, she's like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, like, you know, and they're supporting you're like, oh, it's okay. But like, it's not. Then I was discussing it with her. And she's like, yeah, I just, there's no right thing to say. And I was like, there isn't. There's no right thing to say to something like this. Yeah. So yeah what can you do um so yeah he called apologized I said thank you and he's like so what do you want from this I was like sorry he's like what do you want from reporting this and I was like to make sure he doesn't do it to anyone else is what I want from this he's like so you want him to go to jail and I was like no I didn't say that like he's like do you want him to go to jail like he was just very like Ben Ben like at me it's like I don't think that's my decision I just need know I need to do everything within my power to stop him from doing it to someone else he's like okay he's like okay well we're gonna um go and talk to him this week I was like oh sorry like I was told by the other detectives and like by my counselor that you know if you did like you've released like um you'd arrest him and then release him on bail or like my counselor said it would be at the end of the investigation it's like oh no we only have your version of events from that night and like okay like I understand that I get that you'll need a statement but I was like he knows where I work and he knows roughly where I live and I'm really afraid he's going to confront me once he finds out I've reported this and he's aware to that's the risk you take with reporting this he wasn't violent enough that night for us to issue an avia. So again, I asked, do you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Didn't handle it well. Not going to lie. I, I'm, I'm actually speechless. Like, yeah. First of all, provide you with your, what your options are. So hi, Maddie. Um, I'm the expert in this area because it is my job to be. What yeah. I'm going to do is provide you with what your options are. Option A is that we corroborate your statement. Option B, we take a further statement so that I can be put on your case and we don't take it any further because you can make a complaint and not take it further. Option C, we take it as far as possible. 
in that circumstance, this is like give you options, provide you with options. He's yeah. sitting there saying that he's only got your side of it. He's not actually spoken to you. He's read somebody else's report and he's telling telling you the severity of the crime based on that without even speaking to you about it or consulting you about it. Like that's the whole thing and the attitude is just it's victim blaming from the very beginning from the people who were supposed to be prosecuting these people. Yeah. It was it was brutal. Like that phone call was brutal and it really I got off and straight away had an anxiety attack. I just crawled into a ball in my back office at work and was literally like rocking, sobbing myself. Like I was like, oh my God, he's gonna kill me, he's gonna kill me. My colleague ended up coming back when I didn't come out of the room and like found me and had to like <laughs> drag me out of this like freaking bull rocking myself and being like, just go home. It's like I can't be here. He's going to be taken this week. He's going to, he knows where I work. And so I ended up having to take that week off. And I never, I never understood why that phone call was so brutal. Um, I didn't get it. I was like, you were supposed to be on my side. But I understood once, I'm skipping way far ahead, but when it came to trial this year. So I never understood why he was so mean and rough on that phone call. But he ended up talking to my dad at the trial and was saying to my dad how proud he should be of me and how brave I was and to go ahead like that. And he was saying how many people like come forward and then like um, like pull out or like don't go ahead and stuff like that. And I think in his way, I know it sounds screwed up and like the police definitely need to get some like counseling on how to talk to victims of sexual assault because that wasn't good enough. But I think in his own way, he was testing to see whether I was brave enough to go through with it. Because if I couldn't handle that fucking bangle, there's no way I could have handled the trial. Yeah, I get that. But this is your initial disclosure. Like I get that. And it just seems like bro culture to me. Like he's gone up to your dad being like, you've got a strong one. She stood up under scrutiny. She, she could withstand me being forceful. It's just like, it's not your job to be rude and dismissive and victim blaming to you to test whether you're going to go the length of this. That's not his job to do. You need to get, get an advocate in if you're not strong enough, like, and being strong enough is actually having enough knowledge at your disposal to be able to possibly withstand cross-examination or the process that you're going to have to go through for the next couple of years. It's not like that. I just find that so patriarchal, so bro culture and so like, and the fact that he's gone up to your dad about it as well, like that just, it just screams like lads, like, you know, look at us, look at, look at, look at us looking after the little, little ladies who aren't very strong. Look at them with their puny brains and weak little arms kind of thing. Like that's like, obviously sarcastic yeah. for the people who can't see my face but like that's just so it's just the vibe that it, it gives me do you know what I mean like yeah. it's- and like I said I don't like him at all to start with he run me the wrong way I hated him I was like I fucking want a woman I want this handed over I was like screw this um so yeah I really struggled with that to begin with I'm just like how is he on my case how am I going to deal with this as I said we're really good now we've come to it's been two and a half year process and like I'll talk through it um I ended up so that was the Monday on Saturday of that week he ended up calling and being like oh we want to see we have questions about your statement can you come in and answer them and I was like okay um have you brought in um the perpetrator and they're like oh no we want to clarify these things first so I ended up going and meeting him the next day on the Sunday 
And I think it did really help to meet in person. Like you said, like they know who I am. They know the type of person I am. And I got to know him and his partner and like put faces to names, I think really helps in these situations. And I could just tell like he was, he's one of those awkward people. I think he doesn't handle emotions well. So maybe shouldn't be on cases like this. Like he did amazing for me in the end, but like at the same time, time I'm just like I can tell it's hard for you to like associate with these sort of things and like he's like that night so they ended up I had to give a second statement because the first statement was all factual like it had nothing to do with what I was thinking at the time so the second statement had to be everything I was thinking with the EATS Act and they wanted me to explain but like did you enjoy this and did you want to go to sleep so I had to talk through piece by piece and be like I wanted to sleep um but I can center to this I just wanted to sleep and so they did that um and you know by the end his partners ended up being like what do you want to want him in jail and I was like I don't want anyone in jail that's not my choice here I just need him to be held accountable so he doesn't do this to anyone else like it wasn't my decision back then do I think we're saying now no but back then <laughs> I was just like no don't care um and then they pretty much said the best way forward even with the text messages was to do a phone call um, and get a warrant to do a phone call where I call the perpetrator and essentially say what you did was wrong and get him to admit it over a phone call. I know this is quite a common tactic now. Um, and for those who don't know, um, the police can't talk you through it. They'll be in the room, they'll be recording it, but they can't say anything because otherwise it's interrupting evidence. So you have to come up with whatever you're saying by yourself and they just have to watch you. Um, they said it was our best chance. So they're like, can you do that? Are you brave enough to do that? And I was fucking terrified. I didn't want to talk to him again. Like I hadn't ignored his phone call like the weeks before, the week before, because I didn't want it. I hate talking on the phone as a person, just me. Um, but yeah, so then it became waiting for the warrant for the phone call. And that took a few weeks. We were just waiting and waiting. And I ended up like messaging to like follow up. And it's like, we're still waiting. And like during this time, it went from like nightmares about that night, not being able to sleep to that night to just every waking moment or when I'm trying to go to bed, my mind just naturally is like, okay, so what? you going to say and it's all I could do I fucking couldn't sleep I couldn't sleep because all I could think what are you going to say what are you going to say it's fucking torture I'm not I'm not a patient person I'm not good at waiting and so again like it's the nightmares of what happened it's the nightmares of that it's the not being able to eat the stress anxiety of not knowing when this phone call would happen um and during this time I just like I think even before this I think the week after I deleted all the dating apps. I'm just like, fuck this. I can't, I can't meet a man. I can't do anything. Um, yeah. So I downloaded the, the apps again and started talking to people because I was like, he's not going to take this away from me. I wanted to meet someone. That's why I was on there. Um, and the reason I'm going into this is this person becomes important to my story going forward. Um, so started seeing someone um, and it was good for me because it was in lockdown and we entered the stage of lockdown where you couldn't leave your house. You couldn't go anywhere besides to work and it had to be essential work, groceries, and a partner's house so it was like really my only escape at the time um and it was really good with him to start with um and it was good I was terrified meeting him the first night fucking scared shitless 
but he wasn't intimidating and we got along well and I was really awkward so but we continued the first couple of weeks it was fine and then um the phone call came back from the email um came back from I went to say my detective's name apologies came back from my detective um and he's like oh we didn't get the approval for the phone call so my detective emailed me um that they um I'm proceeding with the phone call and they had taken my perpetrator in over this weekend and this was a Monday and that they had questioned him. And I was just fucking furious. I had waited by this. It was four weeks later, heard nothing and all of a sudden like, oh, we've changed our mind and we took him in. Now, this is the first week, Maddie, that I was able to go for a walk by myself. Before this, every walk I went on, I had to have someone with me. It's the first time I'm like, I need to get back out. I need to get moving. It was the first time I went for a walk along the beach. And I was like, if I fucking knew, if you just warned me, I never would have left my house. Like, Mm. I know nothing happened, but I was like, you put my life in danger. Like, he knows roughly where I lived. I told him within a few houses. He knew within a few houses where I was based. So if he was angry, he could have come over. Like, why wouldn't you warn me? And I was like, what happened to the phone call? Because I had, I was like so anxious and had so many nightmares waiting for this. Um, and he ended up saying the warrant for the phone call was denied by the judge because I had never answered my perpetrator's phone calls before. It was unfair for me to now call him. Right. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. We laugh about it because I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, okay, so hang on. <laughs> okay. Process that one. Is that? Is that under the basis maybe that it might be suspicious from him that he might think that you've called and that they're going to be recording it? Or is that under the thing that I, what, that's not a reason. Yeah. I never like, well, it still sticks with me to the day. Like there's so much about it. But like when he said that, I was like, sorry, what? Because like I didn't answer after he raped me several times to his several phone calls. I'm now not allowed. What? So if I answered back then and be like, hey, what's up? Why are you calling? Like I would have been able to. (laughs) Oh, it still hurts. It still hurts me. Like I'd really like to see the justification for why that's a reason. And I'm sure that there is one. Like I think Maybe there is some kind of is there is there a president that has to be met like under the legal system? Is there something that you've got to do with reasonable suspicion? Maybe they they made a judgment that look she didn't answer the calls previously. Maybe there's where we think that he's going to be suspicious of that. Therefore, you're better off going to his house so that he doesn't destroy evidence. Maybe that's the like. It would be nice to, though, know the procedural reasoning for these decisions rather than just be told because you didn't answer, it is your fault, and then we're I not going to tell you and we're going to proceed anyway. Like my fault, like my fault that I didn't answer him. I agree. Like why couldn't you say why? Like I have so much distrust now in the legal system. It just like is another thing on the list. But yeah, at the time I was just like, what? Sorry? But yeah, so that was a real like kick to the gut. I was like... I'm sorry. Just... I laugh about it now because it just seems so ridiculous. I was like, should have answered the phone call a few weeks ago. Maybe then we'd be okay. Like, oh, yeah. Um, but we're talking about evidence in a rape case. Yeah. Like, it, 
it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And I just like, yeah, with that, I was just so angry. But yeah, so like you just sort of keep on there like, yeah, right, we took his DNA, so we have to wait to ma- try to match into your kid. And I was like, yeah, okay, more waiting. If you haven't realised the whole part of this podcast, it should be titled waiting because that's all this process is, just waiting, <laughs> waiting for other people to make decisions about your life. Um, but, yeah, so then I was, as I said, I was seeing this guy um, and he was he was good at distracting me. He was good at getting me out of the house. Um, one thing is by this stage, this is like July now, so we're a few months in by this stage, and I hadn't told my family. I hadn't told my family what had happened. I felt so much shame. And my family was all down in Victoria. So I can say it's like the one positive of COVID for me was at this point the lockdown between your state of Victoria and my state of New South Wales. Because usually once a month I would go down and visit my mum because she has MS and I like to check on her and spend some time with her. But because of this, it was like an excuse for me not to see her which gave me time to like I just I couldn't tell them but they knew they knew within the first week of the assault that something was different they started like confronting me pretty much straight away because even just my text correspondence the way I text changed and they could pick that up as my family that something was wrong I guess it was the one good thing of like COVID with Latin as well when people realized, like my friends started realizing that I hadn't told the like something like a UK, something's wrong just because I was very like unhuggy, like I'm very easily affectionate and all of that changed. Yeah. Um, so I could just wipe it off. Oh, I'm being abused at work every day. It's very stressful. So people would believe that. So it was the one sort of good thing. But yeah, my family, Beth, my mom and my dad and my stepmom at the time were very religious people. I, I don't know why, but I don't know if you're the same, Maddie, but in your head, you're just getting your head and you just, I think, expect the worst from people. Like they're my family, I'm close with them, I love them. But in my head, it was just worst case scenario that they were going to disown me, say it was my fault, that I'm, you know, a slut, blah, 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 because they're Christian and they go to church. And I was just terrified. Like I was terrified of how my family would respond. A month into seeing this guy, he came over. It was really out of the blue. So the day before, we had booked a trip away for that weekend with his for me to meet his best friend and the best friend's partner because he was performing. So he's a singer down in Canberra. So we are going to go because you could travel in the state. Paid for a hotel. Next day, he comes over and breaks up with me. <laughs> it was just so out of the blue. It's like, we brought a hotel last night. Like, what? And I was like, why? Like, because I just, I didn't say it coming. I was like, why? And so he, he's very logical and he, he lists them on his fingers and like, he lists the reasons. And I bring this up because the reasons he lists, he's like, you're uncomfortable and bad at sex. Um, you're never happy. You're a depressed person, blah, blah, blah. And he listed these five reasons. Now I remember just sitting there taking them in. And my response was to laugh at him. And he got really insulted. He's like, why are you laughing? This is breaking up with you. Like, this is serious. Why are you laughing? And it's like, oh, my God, insert name. You're breaking up with me because of my trauma from my rape. He's like, what? And I was like, of course, I'm not good at sex at the moment. I'm terrified by it at the moment. I'm depressed because I have a police investigation and I'm terrified for my life every day. I'm like, listen to that. It's like... 
he's like yeah but I didn't know you before like and like for him to say I was an unhappy person like to give me clarity I was like you didn't know me before so I guess this is the person you're seeing but this made me so angry because like anyone who meets me like you're always so happy you're always so bright and bubbly it was the first time I had never been described like that in my life and it just made me so mad but yeah so I'm like you're breaking up with me because I was raped he's like yeah but like this is all I know of you and I was just like this is fucking bullshit so my perp ruined my next relationship I was just so mad I was like fucking leave and he's like he wanted to stay friends but we needed time apart so he left because of that the first it was the first Friday coming up that was the Tuesday of that week and the Friday got home had nothing to do after work so I was like fuck it gonna tell my family this came out of the blue I was just like nothing to do let's tell them so I ended up videoing calling my mum and telling her and then my dad stepmom and all my stepbrothers in a separate video after and like to their credit they were fucking amazing like as much as it can go well telling someone like that they were just that they listened they understood and it was just perfect like it couldn't have gone better but yeah so we're waiting for the dna to come back two weeks goes by nothing three weeks go by nothing four weeks go by nothing I leave it seven weeks just because I'm not a pushy person. I'm just like, there's got to be something. Like, there's got to be something. Like, and I get like asking like my family, my friends. I was like, do I email them? Like, I don't. I know they've got other cases. Like, I don't want to like inundate them. But like, my detective said two weeks, and it's now being seven. So I ended up people convinced me to email them, and I emailed them, and I was like, hey, just wondering if like the DNA is back, or if you have an update about my case. Like, and the next day I get a phone call. It's this random detective that I've never spoken to before has had nothing to do with my case, and he's like, oh, um, just giving you a call. The DNA matches. Um, but it's not a semen it's not ejaculation now we're not saying you're a liar that he didn't ejaculate in you that's not what we're saying at all I was like sorry he's like we're not calling you a liar I was like I never said that he didn't I fought him off me and it's like oh well to be honest I haven't really read your case but you wanted an update (laughs) quality sleep is essential That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Every time the police could just, like, fuck with me, they could, I swear to God. Just do the bare minimum of your job, mate. Like, if you're going to call a victim of a crime with the DNA evidence pertaining to their crime, which is pretty much in all cases a linchpin for whether this is going to go ahead or not, yeah, just read the summary page. Yeah. Read the file. Hard. I fought him off. He did ejaculate inside me. That's like probably a key keynote to have before you start saying to someone they're not a liar, like about that fact, which isn't a fact. So I was just like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's. I love like that. People ask why victim survivors don't come forward. People ask why the system, blah, blah. And it's just like, if you're confronted with any of this shit, like imagine how many people have dropped off through this process. The police don't care. They've left it a year because, and do they call you back? I don't know. And how many people with that guy berating them in the first instance, like you did, just said, oh, when you'd ask, do you want him to go to jail? That's not the question. I'm asking, can I proceed with criminal charges? I'm not asking for an outcome here. Read the bloody file, mate. Like it's not... It's not hard. And like, this is the, and then he followed that out with because he didn't know my kid. He's like, so um, just, and I'm at work. Like I'm literally at work. I was on a phone call for work when I had to take this phone call from the police. And he's like, so um, when he was fingering you, like how long did that last and how deep did it go? And like, I was like, I was like, sorry, like I'm at work. Like I, I don't, I can't talk about this like right now. And he's like, when he was performing oral, like how long did that last for? And did he exert his tongue deep inside you or was the tongue? Or I was like, sorry. Are you we haven't even read the file. I was like, are we doing another like, oh, I was like, is this another statement? Like I need to probably sit down and prepare for this, not be at my place of work and giving you this information, like with people around me. What are you talking about? Like, first of all, yeah, you should, if they want to ask more questions, that's fine. But he's literally just told you that he hasn't read the file. Yeah. 
So what kind of evidence is he going to be able to add? What kind of relevance is he going to be able to add? Spoke to victim on this date while she was at work. Yeah, exactly. Told her she wasn't a liar. Asked some additional very invasive questions while she's in the back room of her office. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? That's just, it's It's just like. I laugh because it's so infuriating. Like, no, like, I'm not laughing at you at all. And yeah, I think, no, 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 it, no. I know you're not. It's just it, like. And I want to say this for the listeners because we're looking at each other so we can see each other reacting here. When we're laughing, it either could be trauma, it could be funny. This is so outrageous that I am astounded at the level of disinterest in many ways that you've had to experience. It's shocking. Because you expect different things that go forward. You don't expect a police officer to call you at your place of work to give you such incredibly important news and to be so disrespectful of you and your time to not even have read the file. That is just, it is incredibly disrespectful. And we're laughing at the absurdity of it. Yeah, just read it before, like read the like main point of it. Like it's not like you've got to have like a summary somewhere. So yeah, and then so I answered these ridiculous questions like from the best of my memory because now it's been months. And then he's like at the end, he's like, okay, well, like our investigation is done. So I'm going to prepare the evidence kit and get it all written up. And I'm going to tell you now, I don't know how long that will take me, um, but then we'll hand it over to the DPP or I don't know if it was called the DPP then, hand it over to like the legal side because they need to decide if there's enough evidence for them to go forward. It's not our decision. And I was like, okay, so you don't know how long that's going to take you? He's like, no, I can't give you a time frame. I was just like, I hung up the phone and I just felt so just disappointed and like failed in the system because I was like you're the one who is admitting they're writing up my case when you haven't even been involved and don't really seem to give a shit and you're the one handing it over I was like what (laughs) and I don't know again like my biggest thing and I've discussed it so much with my counselor love control I hate waiting I hate not knowing I like to have control and being told I just have to wait this in suitable amount of time and not know when it will be oh yeah and it is it's concerning especially about the fact that they were asking you such pertinent questions at a time when you you couldn't sit there and have a think through and properly answer those like you would expect like to receive the evidence to come back and tie off any loose ends so that you've got an ironclad case to take to the dpp because again it's not yeah it's not the police's decision to determine if it's going to withstand the scrutiny of the legal in quote unquote system. And it's important that people understand that there are two aspects to that. And they hand it over to the DPP and then the DPP or the office of public prosecution or whatever the legal side is called in your state or territory, that is the part that is responsible for prosecuting the case. It's not the police. The police end up being called as witnesses or things like that to provide additional evidence. They're not the ones who try the case. And, yes, maybe there's not, but they could say, you know what, we could give you a call if we hear anything every couple of months. But likely the timeframe is going to be at least 12 months. We've got COVID happening kind of thing, whatever the situation might be. But I I would be absolutely furious as well, beyond belief, if I was sitting there and I had somebody that seemed disinterested, didn't give a shit, and 
stated they hadn't read my file and then they were potentially somebody that was responsible for submitting the evidence and they'd just asked a couple of flippant questions at the end. Yeah. Like it just seems like there wasn't much care. And, yeah, it just it just left me feeling so just like I was like, what's the point? Like, honestly, what's the point? Like, you guys obviously don't give a shit. Like, what's the point of this? So, yeah, then the following week, my original detective emailed me. He's like, we have an update with your case, um, but I have to go into court for the next week. Can I give you, can I give you a call next Thursday? This was Thursday. So I was like, I have to wait a fucking week, but okay. So waiting, following Thursday, doesn't call, I get an email. And the email says they're charging him um, for one count of sexual um, intercourse um, with, what was it, penal in sexual intercourse with penal penetration without consent is his one charge which is what the one I wanted they said back when I met with them that maybe they could go um up against him and try to charge him with the other sexual acts but back then I said I didn't want them to because I was like well I consented like even though I just wanted to sleep like I I I consented so no like that was the act I didn't want to do and so the email came through and I was the one who reported it and everything so my response really surprised me I had a panic attack again just started having a panic attack called my mom straight away she angered and I'm just like struggling to breathe on the thing she's like what's wrong what's wrong and she, I'm like they're charging him and she's like oh like that's gr- such great news and that was everyone's responses when I told them they're like oh that's such great news that's what you wanted isn't it and in my head yes like it is but the reason I was having a panic attack is the realization that this this part of my life isn't over, that this is really just the beginning, <laughs> because now we're going to court, and I know that's a long way. So yeah, I did not um I did not handle that well, and I ended up going into a depression because of that. And I remember talking about it with my counselor because like I just I couldn't. I couldn't cope with the waiting, knowing I had to keep dealing with this. Like I knew I would have to see him in person. I knew like it was just so overwhelming. So this was the end of August. And I remember in September um, talking to her and I just talked to her, um, explained it as like, I felt this like, like this weight on my chest that whenever I tried to breathe and breathe deeply, like I could never fully breathe. And I felt like, if I was thrown into a pool or into the earth and I would just sink to the bottom because I felt so heavy. Um, and yeah, so she tried to help me with that and we did grounding techniques to try to help with that. The guy that I talked about from earlier that I was dating, we ran into each other in August at the snow, like completely coincidence. So we were seeing each other again by this time and that got really really toxic we were just really relying on each other to the point we shouldn't be so you know looking back like we're good friends now but like it really wasn't good it wasn't good for me to have him there um because I I did I relied heavily on him and he relied heavily on me um because um he was a pilot and he was on stand down so bless you he was having his own depressings um so the following month I ended up I just wasn't coping and I remember discussing it with my counselor and being very honest that I had started cutting which is something I tried for like a week in high school and I was like no not for me never done it before like and I started cutting because the way I described it to my counselor was I felt so much hurt and so much anger and so much inside of me and I just I couldn't 
process that I couldn't see the pain. Like I felt this pain. I felt this immense pain inside of me. But if anyone looked at me, I looked fine. I was fine. But to me, if I could see like a cub, then it was like I could see the pain. So yeah, it it didn't get good for a while. And then obviously, so that was September going on. Um, my partner at the time saw it. So he tried to help me with that. But yeah, it was the waiting. It was then entering the court. So they charged him, I think it was end of September, October. And then it was entering the court in November. At the same time, obviously, I'm de- dealing with freaking COVID with Flight Center. Um, so we're processing me and my one colleague left of processing hundreds of refunds. We're getting abused every day. Um, and this whole time, Maddie, you said your sister worked for Flight Center. So this whole time, we were promised that if we were still working through this, like our jobs safe we were fine all of a sudden October comes like oh we're doing this like a um, nationwide meeting tomorrow morning and all of a sudden they're like lol joke where actually I think they had 6,000 staff nationally they were cutting down to 2,000 people and everyone the next day you found out if your store was going to close regardless all of you had to reapply for jobs in the open stores and you had a month and that was going to be decided by so dealing with that as well so it was just so much and I just felt so lost and so just like everything had fallen apart as I said at the start before this I had a great life like I was where I wanted to be and everything was just gone like within this one year and so my store ended up being closed Shakara, and then we all applied for jobs as a team leader I didn't have to go to another store I didn't have to reapply I could choose to take redundancy all my other staff had to reapply none of us were chosen for the other stores which was fine with all of us um and my payment ended up being more than I liked so winning um but yeah for the month of October we then had to like try to close off all our bookings before they were handed to another store so then it got to November made redundant it's entering the courts and then it's just like a reflection of life it's like well what are you doing like what do you want to do and I had no idea so I decided to take a few months off um because I had the payment I was like I've never enjoyed a summer here in Sydney properly so I'm just going to enjoy myself so I was spending like most days with my partner at the time he had started flying again um but when he was there but it ended the court and they never made it clear the process for DBT DPP to be fair they'd just be like it's doing court this date in November then afterwards, I get an email and be like, we're back in court this day in December. And it went like that for every month through to April. Like, yeah, going back next month. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, why do you keep going back? Like, no one's explaining, like, what are these court dates? What is this mentioned? What are you doing in the court? But yeah, it got to so December, spent some time with my family. January came and I ended up booking with my counsellor because I ended up getting really, really very depressed me and the partner at the time broke up for the final time thank god definitely needed not a great relationship but he was the only one I confided in that I was like suicidal that I wasn't coping and like I ended up going to stay with him so uh for a little while during battle um but I ended up talking to my counselor in January and explaining how I was feeling that like I just felt like I had nothing to live for the only thing I had happening in my life was this trial so like it's all I had (laughs) I was like 
I don't really like this. And she ended up being like, what you've described is a severe depression. And I think you've left it so long now that you can't get yourself out of it. And you're going to have to go on antidepressants. And that just made me really mad. I'd be, I hate being told I can't do something. So straight away, I was like, fuck you. I can do this. I can get out of it. I'm capable. Um, I was like, okay, give me a month. I'm going to make it out. Obviously couldn't make it out. <laughs> she was right. I was very, very depressed. So I met with her a month later and like talked to her. And for me, like 100% get antidepressants. Awful. Like awful them. My mum's on them. I know several people who are on them. But for me, I just didn't want to admit it to myself. I hate asking for help. I'm that type of person. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's hard to admit it that you're that level of depressed. Like you can't help yourself. It's something yeah. I- with it's really difficult and I think there's a big stigma as well around the use of antidepressants but my GP when I was on them a couple of years ago was you know all these are going to do is lift you up to a normal level and if somebody was happy and they were to take these it wouldn't have an impact on their psyche but all this will give you an opportunity to do is to get to an operating level so that we can start to work on a few things And then we can go off them again. And the way that she described that to me gave me really a lot of confidence in them, that it wasn't saying that there was something wrong with me. It was just saying that, you know, you just, you're you're down here right now. It's like, you know, if you need insulin, if you need a vitamin D boost or something like that, if you need a blood transfusion, you know, it's just to top you up to a certain level so that you can get to a place where you can work on some things logically and properly. And that was really important to me. And I just love the way that she described that to me because the fact-based person in me could admit that that I needed help in some way. And that even in this case, I wasn't specifically relinquishing control, that I had a chemical abnormality that needed to be adjusted for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And my counselor was similar. She was really good at describing it to me and like making me understand it's okay. Like, it's not like, you know, you have depression, you're depressed about what's happening in your life right now. It's the external factors affecting you. So she prepared me. I was going to go to the GP next day. She's like, I have a list of your symptoms ready because there's hundreds of antidepressants. They're going to have to find the best one. Again, another area where I just feel like the system fails. So I went to the GP I have a female doctor that I had seen a few times before this really liked her but her weight was a week and a half and my counselor said it takes three to four weeks for them to start I was like I need them now I can't wait for her so I just saw the first available doctor at the clinic I had to go to and it was like this man in his like mid-60s and so I enter and he's like how can I help you my counselor helped me prepare the like sort of script and I was like long story short earlier this year I was assaulted there was a police investigation they're now entering the courts and I'm just really not coping with that and I am depressed and um talking to my sexual assault counselor I want to go on antidepressants he's like so you're depressed and I was like yeah as I just said with my summary there, yeah, pretty spot on me. Um, and he's like, so not sleeping? I'm like, no nightmares. He's like, and feeling down. I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, I'm going to describe this one to you. And then started talking to me about the lotter. He's like, did you see the guy who found the lotter ticket after three weeks and he lost it and blah, 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 and what I would do with the lotter and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just keep trying to wait for a moment to interrupt him to be like, um, I want to talk about <laughs> 
like what you're putting me on. I end up interrupting them. And I was like, oh, I was put on anti-anxiety medication a few years ago because that was my concern as well, discussing with my counselor, being put on an anti-anxiety medication. And that just made me like a fucking robot. Like it took away, like it leveled me, but to the point I just felt nothing. Like one of my friends cried and usually I cry if someone else cries and I just felt nothing, went off them straight away. Like I don't want that feeling. So I said that to him. He's like, oh no, this one's coming. Like this is the most common one. He's like, but like, I do want to make it clear that like, I'm really sorry for what happened to you, but you know, you have to get over it, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Just get over it. I'm I'm prescribing you as a physician, yeah, antidepressants because you're having some severe symptoms following something that you've gone through and are consistently going through. Yeah, thank but, you, mid sixty year old man, for telling me I have to get over my. <laughs> what is wrong with the men that have come through this story that they are so? ill-equipped to deal with any situation it seems like okay so I'm sorry but don't victim blame as a police officer the first call that you get for the case that you've got read the fucking file before you call somebody with DNA results and don't tell somebody in the middle of their GP appointment where you're prescribing them antidepressants that they should just get over it what do you mean I know it was like all my fears I didn't want to go on them I didn't want to be on them that's the last thing I wanted to hear that I have to get over my trauma I was like the race stereotype you've ever heard it's every single one of them in one story I literally said to you, I was shaking with rage when I left this doctor's appointment. I like called my mom straight away and I was like when I'm really angry I cry so I'm like crying I was like the doctor said this to me. <laughs> he's like, she's so mad because he's worked for like life. Like, she was fucking furious. Mm-hmm. I was like, but that was my fear. And I was like, I literally said to him, my response was, I don't want to be on them. This is my last resort. I've literally been told I need to go on them because I'm not coping. So yeah, I know I'm going to have to get over it and I'm going to be on this as little as I can. But he's like, That's okay. what they're for. That's literally yeah. what they're for. Even if I'm on them for the rest of my life, I'm allowed to be on them. What do you mean I have to get over it? I have the right to be depressed about what happened to me. You fuck God. Oh. So, uh, so, so I refused to ever see him again. After that, I only saw the female. But fast forward to this year when I was doing my impact statement and I ended up talking about my depression and suicide, um, not suicide, oh, my gosh, my suicidal thoughts that led me to go on any, like, things. And they're like, oh, can you go and get, like, a like, letter from the doctor saying that you went on them due to what happened because then we can, like, go to him for a higher charge. So I had to go back to this man that I've hated ever since and refused to see and ask him for this letter. And then they said, like, he may be called as a witness at the um, sentencing. And I told him that may be the case. And he's like, they'll have to subpoena me. I'm not going to come willingly. I can't take a day off work. <laughs> I hate you so much. He's like, that hasn't happened for years. Like, you're going to have to, like, force them to get me to come. Like, what is wrong with you? You're a doctor. You're supposed to want to help people. Help me. I'm just, like, speechless at so many stages in this because it's just so, why doesn't anybody seem to give a fuck? Like, it's just, like, that you're being treated with procedure and malice and 
common disregard that you're a silly little girl and you'll just get over it because it was only a silly little rape kind of thing. And it's not being taken in any way seriously or fairly by other people. And it's just, it's, it's, it's actually astonishingly shocking, like that you've been let down by. These are people in different areas across different time spans at different times of like, this isn't just one organization as well. Like it's just, it's shocking how prevalent, I guess, patriarchy, misogyny, and just the disregard for, for women who have gone through sexual assault is it's just, it's just fucked. I I'm genuinely sorry that that's what you've had to go through. Cause it just, when I empathize and put myself in that shoes, I can't imagine it being anything other than suicidal and fucking depressed. Like I would be obviously the way that you were feeling. Yeah. I, I think it's validated and like, that's the thing. And it's like back then I was still like, I was still just blaming myself. It's like, it's my fault. I asked for it. I was still in such a negative victim blaming mindset and then going through all these different people. Like it was like, they were revalidating my worst thoughts and being like, you are right. Like you deserve this. Like you asked for it. Like, you know, it's not that bad. Like get over it, you know? Yeah. It was just shit. Like, like there was people there, like my friends and family, my counselors, like, you know, you do like, this wasn't okay. But having these people who were supposed to be part of the process to get help, having the police, having the doctor, people who are so highly regarded in society be like, no, this is nothing, whatever. It just was fucking shit. Like it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't go. I didn't understand. So like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Plus, Saudi is the antidepressants did work, so he, he did okay with that one. He picked the right one somehow by knowing one symptom of mine out of all the ones that listed like 10 things ready for him that he didn't even bother to listen to. Um, so that helped. I decided what I wanted to do for a job, got a new job. So that was great. Um, and then so month by month it's going. Then April, they finally said, we can't, we can't come to a agreement. So we're going to court. The trial date will be set next month on this date. It was the 13th of May. And when you say you come to an agreement, is that with the defense and the prosecution in the case, potentially organizing a deal or a plea or something, yeah. there's an agreement, whether you're going to plead guilty to a certain charge or what yeah. the procedure will be from there it's not whether the internal people can come to an agreement whether the case will go forward like this is a case going forward the deliberation is whether this person is going to fight the case in court or whether they're going to say I will plead guilty kind of thing correct so from December through to May they had one day per month where they went to it was the local court then I think at one point it moved to the district court and they would go and argue their points and then I think try to come to whether he would plead but the whole time he was like no I never did this Uh, this never happened so comes the 13th of May they set the trial date 31st of December the next year so another seven months of waiting <laughs> like fuck me like I just want this done I want to move on I discussed it all the time with my counselor it, to me like this was like a chapter in my life and like I just wanted to turn the page start a new chapter and move on and yeah. then it would be like with every step like this I turn the page oh almost shit but I have to deal with this chapter as an ever so I was like, okay, and they apologized because they had told me that they to expect maybe September through like December the latest. So like because of COVID, there's been back up in the courts, and I was like, I get that, like I understand, but like I just want to move on. 
So they're like, well, now I'm dealing with the DPP as well as my detective. Um, and they're like, we can just leave you be up until like December when we'll have to start preparing and you can try to live your life. And that's what I agreed to. I was like, yeah, I agree to that. They offered, I was given a victim support person by the court who like is like my contact for the court. So I go to her who goes to the DBP. She's my contact between them. So she offered to take me to view the court and like to get an understanding because I would have to decide whether I would testify in person or via a video link. So I decided to do that then. So I did that in I think it was June. I went and met with her and she took me through the rooms. Um and like explain it all and explain like show me courtroom compared to an audiovisual and she explained to me that um 90% of sexual assault victims um do it via audiovisual and again because I don't know I just hate myself I'm just like fuck it nah I'm not doing that gonna be in that courtroom she's like and I said that to her but she's like you can change your mind even on the day if you decide you can't do it like that's fine so I yeah I try to push it out of my mind as much as I could until December when they came back and then we started I think I had like one meeting with them sort of preparing me and my counselor sort of like try to help me prepare as much as I could um so you kept being like you need to she's like because I was still blaming myself I I was still blaming myself she's like you need to you need to find a way not to blame yourself because if you go into that courtroom it's not going to be good if you're still in that mindset and then so I had a meeting with the DPP and it was a person like the main one assigned to my case, the barrister, and then they have their second support person. So I met with them. They're like, we can't prepare you, but we need to let you know like how they speak so you understand it. But like they can't like brief you about what to really expect. But just like oh like this and like you know, like don't show anger and stuff like that. Um so I did that with them. I think it was the first week of January. So about three weeks out. Um I was advised because of COVID, I was allowed one support person in the room um, and it would be a closed courtroom. So he was allowed one as well while I'm talking. I was like, sorry, he gets supported while I'm telling what, anyway, anger, but whatever. But it was a closed court. And secondly, yeah, it was COVID. So like usually outside of COVID, you may have like, you know, your all your friends and family waiting outside. I wasn't allowed to have that. I was allowed my support person in the room and I managed to get my mum and dad included um so they they we set it aside so we rented an Airbnb which was really interesting since my our parents have been divorced since I was 18 now and we not so definitely the most time we spent together that was some stress on top of everything I was just like oh my god like am I gonna have to break them up <laughs> they get into a fight <laughs> and my support person I choose like my best friend from high school who's just been there through all of it like she's she's my lobster and uh he had hired the most expensive defense attorney in all of New South Wales um she's known for defending sexual assault B so she used to work for the DBP for like 15 years defending sexual assault apparently she is a victim herself of child sexual abuse um and then for the last three years has decided fuck it I'm gonna go defend them and now her job is to destroy victims on the stand which Obviously, as you can tell, I hold a lot of resentment against this lady. Um, Ethics go out the window when you're being paid the most money in in all of Sydney. I think, didn't you say she's, I think she is on the, like, the top 10 richest people in Sydney or whatever. Like, she's a, 
she's not just a high earner, like, you know, and I want to say that like victim survivors can be a number of different things. You know, if she is one, then I'm, I'm sorry she's gone through that. But you're right. What you've told me and what I've since read is that her job is to destroy victim survivors on the stand. It's not to come to the truth. It's not to yeah. determine what ev- evidence seems to have probative value. It's not to do anything other than to feed into stereotypes to make you look bad in front of a jury and to destroy you and traumatize you as much as humanly possible to bait you to see if you can react so that she can then turn it around and be like, well, if you react to that, then somehow it's not. Yeah. Anyway, continue. I just, I'm frustrated because the conversations I've had today and this week specifically, especially with Holly's case being, you know, posted as well. It's so distressing for me to hear that the job of somebody is not to find the truth, that the job of somebody is to destroy a victim on the stand. Yeah, it is 100%. And, like, looking back now, like, obviously I'll talk about the trial, but for me I hold almost as much anger towards her as I do it against my perpetrator because the way she, like, cross-examined me for a full day and I could just see it, like, just reading her. I'm very good at I like to think I'm good at reading people, but anytime I was close to a breakdown, she was just vibing off it and eating off it and pushing harder and harder, just wanting me to fucking break. And I was like, as a survivor yourself, how how do you do that to other survivor? Like, how is that your job? How do you go home and sleep at night knowing that was your job today? Like, I don't, I can't fathom it. Like, all I want to do now, every survivor I've talked to, all we want to do is help other people and change it for the better. She did that. She did that for fucking 15 years for the DBP and had some amazing cases there and changed a lot for um, child abuse victims and things like that. So I was like, how do you go from being that person, such an advocate, for survivors to be in the enemy, to be in the one breaking us down. How do you sleep with yourself? How do you go home and be like, yeah, I'm a good person. She's got fucking books. She's got, she just released a book recently. She apparently had this ABC, a show by the ABC was based off her as a person. I was like, it's like, why is she famous? She's a horrible person. Like what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's, yeah, it's somebody who's built their expertise on one side of the system and flips that knowledge to use it against the other side. But I guess the thing that a private defense attorney has that a person that works for the Department of Public Prosecutions has is a salary a hundred times greater. You know, this is the Johnny Cochran's of uh, lawyers. This is, you know, the if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. And it's not based on evidentiary value. It's not based on probative value. It's based on discrediting somebody. And, you know, I found it ironic when we were talking that she was, uh, what did she say when she accused you of being an attention seeker? Um, yeah. So I testified for three days. Um, and so first day was just the DPP. Um, examine me asking me questions which was hard enough um second day just at me and in the morning I so just kept like picking random shit like to focus on so the morning it was all about our tinder conversations and so she was focused so much she's like what did you discuss I was like like our days like I don't remember like now it's two years ago she's like well you talked for a week so you must remember something and just kept 
baiting me. It's like, I don't remember. So he's like, well, if you don't remember what you talked about, how do you remember that night correctly? And I was just like, she was, she was getting at me because I didn't genuinely remember. I was like, oh, like, just like how our days were. She's like, what in particular? And like, she was breaking me down when it came to like our Tinder because I was like, I don't remember. Like, and I just kept repeating. And the more I repeated the more I don't remember the more I was like getting flustered and she could pick up on that and she was just pushing and pushing um but then we broke from morning tea and came back and then it was all about that night and once it was about that night like I knew that night inside out like <laughs> I can't forget that night but yeah she accused me of firstly apparently we never talked at all on tinder that week that we only met that morning and that I agreed to go to his house that night I was like okay that's a lie but even so I was like who cares who cares if I met with him 10 minutes before I went there that has no relevance to what happened but she kept being like you're a liar you're a liar um and then it got, got to that night and we discussed other things but essentially her whole defense her whole statement is that um I didn't come that night um, and because I didn't come, um, I was so angry and bitter at him and so resentful that I sat there in that bed seething afterwards and thought about what I could do to ruin his life. And my idea was to um, claim rape against him and go and to the police. And that was my idea for revenge. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. Could you imagine, Maddie, if every time you didn't come from a sexual encounter, you went to the police? My case wouldn't have even been heard. I'd be dead waiting for my time in court. <laughs> Honestly. Imagine if every woman who didn't yeah. come from a sexual encounter with a man. <laughs> I was like, I- that'd be. <laughs> Do you mind just going from the moment that you said that what she had said was the the reason that you had waged war on him? Yeah, Uh, I just, I don't understand, like, if every woman ever who did not come from a sexual encounter, like, went to the police and tried to ruin a man's life by a false sexual accusation claim, I wouldn't even get a day in court. It would be, like, a thousand-year wait. I'm sorry. Like, who does that and how dare you say that I would do that? Like, what? Like, oh, my God. It's literally going against every bit of data as well. Like, it's just, like, that. there's no logic in that argument. Like, do you know that there's yeah. a thing called the orgasm gap? Do you understand, like, that it's actually more expected for women in sexual encounters with men to not have an orgasm? Like, we're already going in there expecting that, excuse you. And how belittling and petty to say that you would do this because you didn't orgasm from the sexual assault that you encountered. Like, how belittling and demeaning is that? Like, just ridiculous. That was our whole defense. Our whole defense was firstly, it never happened. Um, and secondly, um, yeah, like I decided to destroy his life because he couldn't satisfy me. So there was a point where I was like literally sitting there sobbing, like not handling it, probably going to need a break in a moment. And he turns to me like tears running down my face, me holding a tissue, like freaking mess, like as mess as they come. And she turns and she's like, you're loving this, aren't you? And I was like, I literally like, people can read stuff on my face. So I was like, excuse me? Like, I was just so confused. She's like, you're loving here, being the center of attention, having us, forcing us all to stare at you up there right now. You're loving every moment of this. You love telling your family and having them waiting outside these courtrooms. You just 
thrive on this. This was the one time that day that I almost lost my shit with her. And I ended up like, I was just so mad. I was like, how dare you? So I ended up like responding. I was like, no, no, I'm not loving this. I'm not loving sitting here crying in front of everyone. I hate crying. I don't like discussing my sexual encounters and I don't like sitting inside a courtroom with this man who assaulted me. She's like, well, why? Why are you doing this? Then? Why are you trying to ruin and walk over to me? This poor young man's life. Why are you trying to ruin his life? And it's like, because he needs to be held accountable and I need to stop him from doing it to anyone else. And she picks up like my statement book and like slams it down she's like you've never said that before in your life who told you to say that it's like no one told me to say that she's like well you've never said it before today it's like well that's how I feel (laughs) she had nowhere to go like you can't fight that but like yeah like I was like you want to sit up there in a room have everyone stare at you while you sob you vomit you can't breathe for six hours and have someone call you a horrible person in a life his idea of fun is that like (laughs) Sorry. Also, I don't understand where the objection from your part, like from your defense, from your attorneys is coming because it's beyond it to me that there is no, I don't believe in that instance that there is any probative value in making statements. Like what's the purpose in saying you're loving this, aren't you? Where's the person turning around going objection relevance? Like is she trying to insinuate something? Yes, but there's no purpose in what she's saying right now. There's absolutely no reason that she has to say that to you. And I think that that's just crossing a boundary completely because, again, it's got nothing to do with evidence at all and it's got everything to do with trying to make you look somehow like you're at fault. It's ridiculous. All right, I'm going to jump in here to conclude part three with Maddie. I wasn't lying at the top of the episode, was I, when I said that this was going to be angry making. And I want to commend Maddie for the work that she's done, not only after going through something so traumatic, but to actually take it to the court and to withstand that type of berating from somebody, to be able to maintain your composure, then to be able to follow it up and come and advocate and share your story. I think it's just nothing short of incredible And I don't want to say that as in it's stronger than other people. I want to say that, you know, it's been Maddie's choice to do this and I think that she's just an incredible woman for doing so. But I don't want to take away from other people who have chosen a different pathway. And if that is you and you've chosen not to go through the court system, I'm pretty sure after listening to what Maddie's had to go through, nobody would judge you for that anyway. Everybody's experience is their own and I just wanted to call out that and make it really clear that if this isn't what you've done, that's okay. And I do want to call out how incredibly strong and brave I think Maddie is in this time as well. And to continue advocating, I just think it's so important. So thank you so much, Maddie, for coming on. Now, we haven't fully gone into the court process, so Maddie will be coming back and we'll do a fourth and final part. Um, And I do want to encourage all of you to get in touch with her, share how amazing you think she is as much as I do as well. And I just want to say thank you so much and we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? 
This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.